Okay, uh, tonight we're, we're once again talking about um, being a witness. It's kind of the theme that I feel like is so important that God's put on my heart for this week. Not just witness about a decision, but a witness about a discipleship journey in the rest of our life uh, after that decision, if that decision has been made. And I think it's important to talk about how has God himself been a witness? And we've already talked a little bit about Jesus who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So I am a witness, Jesus said. I, basically, I'm a witness to what's going on in heaven and what God's doing, what, what the Father's doing. But I think it's also very important that we understand God put forth a very clear example of what his testimony is, what his witness is. And it's interesting because... Um, talking about uh, the tomb of John being in enemy's hands, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, as it's elsewhere called, Revelation 11, the Ark of the Covenant is the testimony of God. It, it contains three elements that really represent his testimony, his witness to himself. And of course, it had times in enemy's hands which wasn't always good for the enemy. And then times, you know, it just went back and forth a little bit. And so we're going to talk a little bit about, about the Ark of the Testimony tonight because it has to do with how did God himself be a witness to himself? Seems like that might be a model we want to follow. It might be helpful to us. And so the, one of the first things in the Ark is a jar of manna. Now, Many of us know the story of throughout Exodus, uh, time in the wilderness, manna, right? Manna appeared every morning. And could you store manna? No, 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 no. That's the goal. No, 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 no. You can't store manna. It would be rotten the next day. It's as if God wanted us to trust him on a daily basis with our kids. Thanks, Steve. And with basic nutrients. Survival. You can't get any more basic than, uh, I kind of need to have food, God. But this jar of manna in the ark stayed good. It, it, was, it was good. It, it didn't go rotten. And this particular element in the ark representing, I believe, God's testimony that he is a provider. His provision is unlike any other. It, he will provide day in and day out, and you can trust in his provision. Now, skip forward a little bit. Uh, Paul writing to uh, Galatia in six, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers." Now, of course, talking to very much an agrarian culture many times, you know, what was basic provision? Provision was crops, 
or fish. It might have been what provision looked like. So this sowing and reaping. The point here, I I believe, one of the points in this scripture is we get to choose, we get to decide what our harvest will be. Sometimes we feel like, well, I don't, I don't have any choices. I, I mean, I just have to do this. I have to have this job, or I gotta do this for my kids, or I just, I mean, I have to do it. And this scripture is talking to us about, we actually get to choose what our harvest is gonna be, because it depends on what we sow. You can't mock God. What you sow is where you're gonna reap. We talked about it earlier. Good fruit cannot come from a bad tree. Bad fruit can't come from a good tree. It's very, very similar. We get to choose what our harvest will be. And so there are stories of marvelous sowing throughout Scripture, like Joshua, who sowed obedience and faith and trust, versus Achan, after Jericho, who took for himself part of the loot, right? You weren't supposed to take any. Achan made a bad, made it made a really bad call. Barnabas, who sowed not only his finances, but also his encouragement. He sowed his encouragement. He had seeds of encouragement and he sowed them well. Versus Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who also stole from God. A couple of interesting notes about this particular passage there's a very rare Greek word, nashfiza which means to set apart for oneself, and it's used in both of these stories, Achan and Ananias and Sapphira. It's one of the only places that that particular word, very similar in meaning. Interestingly, and different a little bit from the Old Testament with Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, there seems to be this, this somewhat of an equality that, especially in the book of Acts, as, as again, it's a hinge point, to a Roman frame of reference, there seems to be an equality of responsibility whether you're a man or a woman. Like, there was a challenge, there was a test for both the husband and the wife. The wife couldn't just ride in on the coattails of the husband. And she wasn't doomed necessarily because of the coattails of her husband. There seems to be this responsibility in each of us, hey, what do we sow? And yes, there's legacy in family, and there's all kinds of things that are generational, but there also seems to be, what am I sowing? What am I sowing? What is my witness to what God has provided me? And at the same time, have I set apart anything in my life? Nashfiza, have I set apart anything in my life for myself? Anything? And I'm not, I'm not just talking money, Right? Money's talked about so much in Scripture because it's connected to our heart. You, you want to know where your heart is? You start investing money in something, and your heart all of a sudden starts paying attention to that. It's like, oh, man, I wonder what's happening there. It goes together. Heart and money go together. And so this isn't just about money. It's, is there any place in my life where I have kept something apart from God for me? Any of the provision that he's given me in my life. My kids, my spouse, my job, anything, my boat, whatever it might be, my education. Is there anything that's set apart for myself? I think it's something that we really, we really need to wrestle with God on. 
And I would ask you to do that uh, in the next couple of days. We're going we're to spend a little bit of time of that tonight. But one of the biggest things that I think is wrong with this idea of provision, God's provision, and we'll talk about this a little bit with manna in a second. But typically, typically, provision looks something like this. And I'm just going to use a, a man's example because this, in my talks, in my office, and other things, it's usually a guy coming in who's talking about, oh, I, just, I have so much pressure because i got to provide for my family. Ted, I want to do more mission work. I want to do more things, but i got to provide for my family. I have to provide for my family. And this is typically what this model looks like. I have to make money, let's say, or maybe I have to make a name for myself in my company, in my job. Like, I gotta, I gotta prove, I gotta prove myself. I gotta make a name for myself. And then after I do that, after I make money or something like that, a name for myself, I need to distribute it. Distribute it. Distribute that money or, or that name. I, I will... I will shower, you know, I'll just, I'll just be generous with, um, with some nonprofit, or I'll be generous with my kids because, you know, they need to have food, or I want to, I want to save up for college, or whatever it might be. And uh, particularly for in this example with, with, a, with a man, a father, it usually goes to something like family. Or maybe, maybe church, hopefully church. I'm not talking about tithing tonight, that's a different sermon. But make a name, make money, distribute it. And that's, and that's typically the flow. That's usually the pressure I hear from people. I gotta be a provider. I mean, God, God showed provision, basic needs with manna. And I know he didn't save up much, but there's stuff in the Bible about saving. It's very important, but I gotta, I gotta make stuff. I gotta, I gotta make money, I gotta make a name, then distribute it. And as long as I distribute it to the right places, everything's good. Here's once again a problem that we have to deal with because of so many years of feeding from the wrong tree, unintentionally. See, we were never made for this. This is all good. The model, the model is right. And listen, the, the enemy is not a creator, right? It, going back to these circles, Okay, who the enemy is, he's not equal and opposite, like some sort of yin and yang to God. You, you, you know this, he was a created being, kicked out of heaven, a third of the angels, which means there's two-thirds of the good guys left. All this stuff, he's not equal and opposite to God. And he is, Satan is not a creator. He's, he's a perverter. He twists creation. And so the model's fine. The model's fine. Distribute it to family, to church, all that's fine, but the starting point, we, many of us have been tricked with the starting point. It's not this. We were never made for this. We were made, always, we were made to receive. 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 Not make. This, this smells of this fruit. I gotta make something. I gotta create something, I gotta figure something out, I gotta figure out some sort of strategy and way to make something on my own, from scratch. And so provision gets twisted. 
The Israelites received manna every day. They didn't make it. They didn't make it. All they did was receive it. So how do we learn to receive in a life of discipleship? How do we learn to receive daily from the right fruit of the right tree? And receive doesn't mean passive. You don't go to, jo- you don't go to your job. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't, don't you dare put that on me. Well, Ted said I don't have to work anymore. No, it's not what I said. It's a different mindset. It's a different set of pressure. It's a different expectation. Here, you're trusting yourself, expecting yourself. Here, you're expecting God to show up. And it goes back to that choice that we have. Every single day, throughout the day, models right, it's just been messed up. It's been twisted. We've lost what true provision is really about. Because... um, we are made to not just fish. We're made to be fishers of men and women. And again, it goes back to the physical layers. Make money, make name, make a new house, whatever it might be. It really starts to feel like this layer. I got I to gotta come with the right environment so that my kids will have the best behaviors and they'll have the most capabilities and so they'll believe the right things and on and on and on and on. These little twists in how we believe God works can really start to mess with who he is and how we're supposed to go about in life. Okay. Manna also represented and reminded the people of complaints. (laughs) Man, in the wilderness there was some complaining going on, wasn't there? Now, of course, we have matured past complaining ourselves, especially our churches, it's amazing how much there is no complaining anymore. But again, reminding that there is always going to be this temptation that we talked about a little bit last night. Complaining primarily comes from, it's still up here, where does complaining come from? When we start to have expectations about certain things. And our desire, our understanding, our gratitude, our lack, our appreciation starts to go away. God, oh, I mean, I know you gave me a job and these other things, but I, I want more. I know you gave me enough to cover today, but I want more. You're a provider, God. That's what a provider does. You just give me more stuff. And uh, it's good for us to think about what, what does not ultimately perish We don't want to focus, we don't want to trust on what perishes. We want to focus and trust on the one who holds true provision. Okay, I'm going to skip into, um, let's let's go into Matthew 27. I think Matthew 27 is one of the most powerful provision chapters in the entire Bible. It really, it really sets the mindset of what true provision looks like. Matthew 27. This is, this is during the Passion. Okay? And we're going to go through this just a little bit. Okay. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people uh, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, well, <laughs> what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. You see, Judas, his choice of provision was mammon, money. First example of the wrong choice. Judas chose to trust in money, and that blinded him to what was truly priceless. How often does something in the physical layer, something we can feel and smell and touch and sense, blind us from that which is truly priceless? That was Judas. We continue on. Skip down to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, this is Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now we go down, we skip down a little bit, verse 22. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that there was a riot beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate, his choice of provision, fear of man. Fear of man, paying more attention, caring more about what other people think than what is true, than what God thinks. These are the basic, these are the basic tricks that the enemy in the world throws at us when it comes to provision. How am I going to provide, you know, the self-worth for me? Or how am I going to provide harmony? Or how am I going to provide, well, maybe it's money, maybe it's what other people think of me. And those little choices if we sow that into our hearts, we will reap a different harvest than if we sow what is true into our hearts. We continue on. Then the soldiers and governor took Jesus in the governor's headquarters. Uh, they mocked him. They beat him. Took the reed and struck him on the head. And it continues on with priests. The priest's choice of provision, right, was the law. Well, it doesn't follow the rules. See, we, we trust all the law. That is the provision of hope for us. What is right, no matter what, not necessarily relationship, but what is exactly, and we're gonna judge people if they don't follow it. That's, that, that's how it's gonna be. And now we start getting sticky, because it's like, oh, well, doctrine's important. Of course it's important. But we see the priests choosing provision to be law. And that law, they were blinded by the law. They couldn't see the fulfillment of the very law itself. The soldiers, as they beat him, and then later as, they, as he is hanging on the cross, they start casting lots for his clothes, right? The soldier's choice of provision, power and pride, Amidst the spoils of physical death, they missed out on eternal life. Can you imagine? 
You have eternal life hanging in front of you. Hanging in front of you. You can't even see it. Like, oh, I, want, I want that cloth. I want that piece of cloth right there. And eternal life's hanging right there. And then the people, which I think many times I fall into this category. The people. As they come, as you continue to read in this chapter, the, the people come, they're seeing what's happening. And they say, well, you built the temple in three days. Come on. Let's, hey, hey, let's see if he gets down. Let's see if Elijah's gonna do something. Because you know what? At the end of the day, I know that I need to have proof. The knowledge of, well, if Elijah brings him down, or if this is what happens, if he can get down himself, then I will be able to understand, and I will be able to, because of my understanding of this, because of the proof of this, because of the evidence of this, I will be able to believe. That's what provision looks like. It's got to, I got to get it. I got to fully understand it. I got to fully get my mind around it or else it's not really provision. Their own tree of knowledge blocked their vision of the very tree of life. Jesus' model provision, faith, trust, endurance, sacrifice, obedience beyond understanding. Not only provide a model of generosity, but provide a way of eternal reconciliation and daily relationship. And so this is my definition of provision, which you may not agree with, which is totally fine. You don't have to agree with. Provision, I believe, and this has changed the way that I parent. This has changed the way that I, that I minister, minister. This has changed the way that I uh, love my wife. Provision, I believe, is equipping for eternal impact. And you know what? That is my responsibility as a father. Absolutely. And I'm going to receive it from the truth. And I am going to distribute it to my family. Equipping for eternal impact. And yes, I do need to make some money. And yes, I do need to have a good reputation and some of those things. I need to have integrity. But this, this is what it's about. How am I equipping my wife for eternal impact? How am I equipping someone who's coming in off the street, who's homeless or addicted, how am I equipping them for eternal impact? And yes, I, I need to help make basic needs happen, but at the end of the day, it's gotta go beyond basic needs. It's gotta go beyond what, I, what they can just understand. It's gotta go beyond the temporary. It's gotta go beyond. And God has set in the ark one of his main components of the testimony of who God is. I will provide. And even if it takes 40 years of you learning day in and day out, I will provide. That is who I am. Equipping for eternal impact. God's provision is both in very big picture and also very, uh, very specific. And many of you have stories of how God's provided in uh, in, in crazy ways. Um, I want to tell just a, a very brief story about um, our second daughter who uh, is adopted and just a little bit of how God has provided in our life with her. So my wife and I, we got into foster care uh, for a few years because, and we never int intended to adopt out of foster care. 
we just, uh, she's a licensed mental health counselor. Uh, my PhD is in cognitive neuroscience psychology. So we had some background on all kinds of things. And we felt like even if a child wasn't staying with us, we might be able to give them um, the idea of, hey, th- there is another choice of what family could look like. There's another option. What you've seen so far isn't the only option. There's another option of what family and what life can actually be. And so we got into foster care. Well, we heard from a family friend, from one of their friends, that there was a young girl who uh, their foster parents could not adopt her, but the parental rights were about to be revoked, and she needed to go somewhere, and their heart just loved her, but they just adopted a special needs child and couldn't adopt again. They didn't feel like they couldn't adopt again. And so anyway, we kind of got this word from us, kind of get this word from, from them, and um, a very strange thing happened. We didn't even know who this little girl was, but one, one Sunday morning, this little blonde-headed little girl, about 50, 50 feet, 100 feet away from Ange, Ange was outside of one of, the, one of the classrooms, of the kids' rooms, and this little blonde-haired girl came running down, gave her a hug, and then ran away. Didn't really know. I, my, life, my wife is very lovable, but that doesn't, kids don't just naturally, like a magnet, randomly come up and hug her from 50 feet away. Well, we got to, we got to hear more about who this girl was, and we were told by the judge and many other people, there's no way you're going to be able to adopt this girl. I mean, she's two years old, she's healthy, she's in a different, she's in a different county, you're in the private sector, she's in the public sector, it's not going to happen. She'll be off the books no problem at all. Oh, she's white. She's Caucasian, so everybody wants that. You're not going to get this girl. And we said, well, okay. Kind of feel like God's saying we should, so. Don't necessarily have to understand it. We're going to go. And I remember in little simple ways, we felt God putting on our hearts after we had heard no, no, no. He said, go ahead and buy a bunk bed. Why do I need a bunk bed? Oh, because we will have two girls at that point. And we don't have a super large house. All of our kids are in bunk beds. We camp all the time, basically. <laughs> and, and so we bought a bunk bed. Heard from the judge again, it's not going to happen. But we went ahead and got out of the private sector, went to the public sector, had to take a couple more classes. And then we started going through the process of getting our home ready for adoption, not just for foster care. And... Uh, and the judge basically said, hey, okay, it's going to take a miracle, but if, if the, the person in charge of all the home visits, if they say that your house is far and above beyond all the other options, then we'll let you move on in the process. And, but then the case manager has to, out of all the homes in Elkhart County and all the other homes in St. Joe County, they have to un, you know, unequivocally say, your home, by far, is the best. It's... <laughs> That's not going to happen. Okay, so The person in charge of all the home visits shows up at our front door about a week or two later, and she opens the door and says, oh, I grew up in this neighborhood. Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah, it is. What just happened? She's like, oh, yeah, I used to live just right up the house. And she literally talked for like a half an hour about the best memories of her life. We didn't even say anything. She just kept talking. I didn't tell her the neighborhood's changed a little bit. I, I didn't feel like that was necessary at that particular juncture. 
But God just provided in a very, very specific way. And then later on, the, the case manager shows up a couple weeks later, and um, she happened to have gone to high school with my wife's little sister. And I happened to know her husband, who was a youth pastor locally. And little thing after little thing after little thing after little thing. And after a few months and in the, in the, all kinds of stuff, uh, we became this little two-and-a-half-year-old's um, sixth home at that age. Uh, she got to come home with us. And not only that, she had something called reactive attachment disorder. Some of you might be aware of, uh, there was no attachment to anyone. She was bounced around, bounced around, bounced around. So people would say, oh, she's so independent. But really what that meant was she didn't even see anyone else around her. She would, if someone said, hey, here's a sucker, woo, she's gone. Gone. And it was literally eight to nine months, 24-7, being around my wife, Ange, in our home. And I remember the day, she's in the living room, eight months in, to 24 hours a day, she said, for the first time, where did mom go? It's the first time she ever knows someone missing. And she'd been with her 24 hours a day. But the crazy thing is, just a couple weeks before getting our precious Piper, which is her name, and she just happened to go to a seminar on reactive attachment disorder. It just happened to work like that. And there are countless stories that we have and that you have of God's provision. And it may have absolutely nothing to do with money. It may not. It may. But provision is one of the core three attributes of the testimony of who God is. What he is like and what he does. And provision needs to be a part of our witness. Our story. What is your story with, with money? What's your, what's your relationship with provision in your life? What lies have tried to sweep you away and what truth has held you firm in provision? This is one of the three core areas that need to be a part, I believe, need to be a part of our witness. Need to be part of our continuing ongoing story of how God is equipping us as disciples. What an ongoing life of discipleship looks like. And one um, story from scripture that I'm gonna talk about uh, which is one of my really fun ones. As a, I used to be a psychology professor, and um, and this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, favorite stories because I think it it brings out this nuance of who God is as a provider. Uh, side note, and those from Granger don't jump to any conclusions on this. We've had some friends recently who have who have left our church, maybe gone somewhere else to another church. And this particular other church is, is a very intellectual church, a very progressive church, very much head. Um, they, they do some wonderful things. But what we've seen in some of our closest friends is that they no longer have a friendship with Jesus. They, they might know a lot more about certain debates, whatever, but they literally, there's, there's an emptiness inside about just relationship, friendship. It's, it's gone. There's nothing there. And some of this has to do with provision. 
Because provision, when you're trying to create and make, and you're hoping God just makes it happen, that's a very different relationship than when you are day in, day out saying, Papa, Abba, God, help me. Every day, receive. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, just like your son, I'm going to only do what I see you doing. I'm going to be receiving from you. I'm going to be in a dependent state. And it's very interesting that in the world that we live in, achievement, success, uh, maturation, maturation, um, all, all these things. All, you know what's synonymous with all these things? In almost every other re- arena of our life is this, independence. We are surrounded in a culture that whether it's you're able to finally dress yourself, feed yourself, or you're, you're an employer and your employees finally, I don't have to hold their hand, like they can actually do the project on their own, yes. Or I don't have to, you know, have you ever been in that group project in school, however many decades ago that was, if that's you, but you know you're in a group project, but you're like the only one pulling your weight? You're like, oh, do I really want an A that bad? Well, no one else is doing anything. I wish they were just independent. I wish, can't they just do their part on their own? So many things. When in sports, when a, certain ki- when a kid can do a certain skill all on their own, they see the vision on the court and the coach doesn't have to. It's all linked to this. We will never, because of how the world is wired, we will never drift to dependency on God. We will always drift to independency. That is the current of our culture, Western culture in particular. That's the, that's the current. Independence equals success. That's the goal. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, in, in a lot of arenas of your life, if you're 30, you should be able to feed yourself and dress yourself. I mean, it, it should happen. But again, do you see how this can cause a problem with this. There has to be an intentional strategy of, in faith, it's not about this. It's not about this. It's about receiving. It's about dependency. And you know what? When left to my own devices, if I'm not thinking intentionally or strategically, I'm going to drift towards independence. And that also comes along with it lies like, I bet God is disappointed in me because I ask for help all the time. I bet God gets tired of me because I'm just, I'm like an immature child who keeps messing up and I know how I feel as a father with my child when they don't get it. And our heart drifts to all the things associated with our frustrations when people are not independent or when employers or when kids on a team or whatever. And all those emotions come with that and lies come with that. And that's just not how it is with God. Absolutely, he has good, good things planned for us to do. But we are to be dependent upon him, and we're not going to drift there. Okay, <laughs> that's not the story that I was going to tell. That was completely different. Okay, back to the favorite story. It's in the book of John, ironically. Talking about John tonight. But we have the book of John, and there is something in John that I think is absolutely so important. 
Um, ooh, I am running out of time. Okay, let me, let me fast forward through this. Fast forward through this. Okay. Because most of you know this story. All right? You have Peter who denies Jesus three times, right? Three times he denies Jesus. And then Jesus is showing back up, okay? In verse 21, he shows back up. This is uh, Jesus. Sorry. Oh, I'm in Luke. Okay, here it is. I have it over here. Okay, after this, this is when Jesus shows back up on the beach. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee, two other disciples were with together. Simon Peter said to them, hey, I'm going fishing. And they said, okay, we'll go with you. Typical guy. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, if you've read the rest of John, some of the other gospels, you know that this is Jesus' definition of an inside joke. This is how they met the first time. Hey, you guys caught anything? No. Try the other side of the boat. Ooh. Can't even haul it in. Once again, hey, you guys caught anything? Children. <laughs> Children. Children. You caught anything? No? Try the other side. You can just see Jesus like smirking. Like, here we go again. They cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. They got the joke. I just love it when we get God's humor. To me, getting God's humor really was a changing point in my life, honestly, in my relationship to him. The disciple, uh, it's the Lord, when Simon Peter heard about that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. <laughs> Different sermon. Threw himself in the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging in the net of fish, for they were not far from land, but a hundred yards off. Very specific in this particular um, story. I'm going to continue on. I'm going to skip down. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus and Peter. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. You know I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. Third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was to show the kind of death that would glorify God. This is what I want to get out of this, out of this passage, and we got to go. Okay, there was three denials, Peter, of Jesus, and there were three recoveries, right? I love you, I love you, I love you. And there's a lot just in that, three and three. Because you know, if he denied Jesus three times and only said he loved him twice, you know what the devil does. You only told him he loved him twice. You denied him three times. So there's, there's enough there. But in psychology, there is a particular, one of the most fundamental ways of learning anything. It's something called classical conditioning. And this is where you have some sort of stimulus, okay, and then some sort of other stimulus that leads to some sort of response. Right? Now, this is a neutral stimulus. Okay, I'm not going to get into the technicalities any more than this. All right? 
This reminds me of, of our dog. Let me explain. Very, let's, when, when I came through the, the door of the garage, dog would go crazy. Daddy's home. <sighs> go nuts. That's how it's supposed to happen. But you know what started to happen? She started to learn when I hear the garage door start to open, I start going nuts. I haven't walked through the door yet. But she learned these things are connected. And so what ended up happening is garage door, garage door, like, like the actual mechanical door opening, she would be happy. Woo! And way before I walked through the door. This also works in reverse. Have you ever had food poisoning? You're like, I'm not going to Taco Bell for like a year. Because I had Taco Bell maybe later that night. Maybe it wasn't food poisoning. Maybe I got sick and I, mm, it was a bad night. And you relate it back to that food that you had. Right? So it can be, it can be good or bad. Now listen. Jesus knows, he would, have, he would have totally gotten an A in my class. He knows this stuff. He made it, made us this way. Let's, let's, let's look at Peter. Peter denied Jesus. Denied Jesus three times. What, what, what did that have to do to Peter's mindset? Full of shame. He even came to Jesus and said, I, everyone else can fall away. I'm never going to fall away. I am going to die for you. Jesus is like, you don't even know what's going to happen. And you're going to deny me three times and all this stuff. And so we have a rooster. A rooster crowing that's associated with denial three times. If you've ever been to a third world country at all, you know roosters, they don't just crow at sunrise. They crow whenever they want to. It can be 2 a.m. and they're crowing. What does this mean? It means every morning, every single morning, Peter is swallowed up over and over and over and over. You blew it, Peter. You blew it. You denied the Son of God. You blew it. You blew it. The accusation, heavy. This is one of the three most basic ways we learn anything. This is how our brain works. And this is why I love, one of the reasons why I love Jesus, and in this story, in John 21, because Jesus knows provision in big ways where he can feed an entire nation in the wilderness and he knows exactly what we need all the time. Because one of the most important parts of this story oftentimes gets overlooked. Here it is. When were they meeting? Let's go to verse 4. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just, I think the most important verse in this entire section, just as day was breaking, Jesus is still on the shore. What's happening? Oh, the roosters are crowing. They are crowing. But Jesus is saying, this no longer is going to be a connection. Nope, 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 nope. Roosters now mean confession of belief, of belief, 
of what's true. That Peter, at the end of the day, I'm gonna take the thing that has buried you in shame, and this is just who God is. He's a rescuer, he's a restorer, he's a redeemer. I'm gonna take that which was worst and make it a reminder of who you truly are. You're my rock, baby. I'm gonna build on you. You have now a reminder every single morning of what you truly believe. And I'm gonna get rid of that shame. So there are things I believe in each of our lives that have hindered us when it comes to provision. It can be lies up here, things that we believe of what provision means. It can be lies up here. It can be things buried deep within us that we just think, God, God, God's not gonna waste his time with something like that. With an emotional hurt. Something someone else did to us a long time ago. Something someone's still doing to us. Some little thing that maybe it was back when you were a kid and a friend hurt you and whatever, but there's been a seed that sowed and in your life there has been a reaping of the, of the harvest of that seed. That was not true. And I just wanna to say tonight as we close, God cares even about the roosters that crow in your life. He came at, he came at breakfast on purpose. On purpose. He could have come the night before. And he will come at daybreak for you as well, whatever that means, for the roosters that might be crowing in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that through your spirit you remind us of what is true about your provision. One of the three core components of your own witness to yourself is that you are a provider. You're a provider daily. You're a provider for nations. And you are a provider personally. You know us. You know the things in our life that trip us up. You know the wrong definitions we have about things. You know the lies that have been spoken over us or the lies that we've believed about ourselves, about you, about others. And Father, I just pray for all those roosters in our life, ones that we don't even know about. Just come at daybreak for us. And each of them, help us. We are dependent upon you for truth that we can believe. We don't want to be independent. We don't want to make anything. We want to receive everything. So God, just shift our heart stance, please. That we might submit before you, surrender everything before you. And say, God, do work. Do work. And even now, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, is there anything you want to bring to our mind that maybe we have been choosing to trust in? just like the soldiers or the priests or the people. Lord, have we, have we chosen to trust in material things? Have we chosen to trust in friendships and, and fear of man, you know, workplace, whatever it might be, over you? Have we chosen to trust in knowledge? Intellect. Father, if there's anything, 
that we have chosen to trust in to provide fulfillment and happiness and joy. Maybe it's another person that we've chosen, a spouse, a child, a mother, a father. God, we just want to humbly come before you tonight, and we want to confess to you, which just means agreeing with what's true. We want to confess, God, that person, that entity, that material, it is not you. And we don't want to trust it anymore. Not as the provider, not as your provision. You are provision. You are the source, and we want to receive from you. So, Father, please remove that, that false provision away from us. Cleanse us of that, whatever harvest might have been reaped from that, Lord, in our life. And sow new seeds of truth. Remind us in the days to come how you have provided for us in big ways, in small ways. And, Lord, write those stories into our testimony. Write those stories, those daily stories, those weekly and monthly and yearly stories into our witness of who you are as the provider. As always, we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.